Now we read from God's word. And this morning we're reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Today we look at power dynamics. We're going to look at how to thrive when you're a servant or or even if you're a slave, and then how to work when you're actually placed over people, when you're on top. How to work when you're at the bottom, but also how to work when you're above. Now we need to give some background before we start. And first of all, depending on the Bible translation that you're using, the text may use the word bondservants, or the translation may use the word slaves. It says in in the New King James, bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters. Or, depending on your translation, slaves, obey your earthly masters. The word for bondservant is doulos, and that word means slave. But slavery, in Roman times, it differed in some ways. It differed from American chattel slavery. And so, in this context, in this book, writing to Greek cities like Ephesus, about a third of the city population, they were douloi, bondservants, or slaves. But unlike American slaves, most of these people weren't kidnapped. Most of these people hadn't been kidnapped and sold. Piracy and kidnapping and man-stealing, they were illegal. It, it, it did occur. It did occur in Roman times, in those times, but it was illegal. And unlike with American slaves, which targeted black people, the slaves in Roman times, they weren't people who were targeted for their ethnicity. Now, in Ephesus, the slaves were likely, not universally, but likely the slaves in Ephesus, they were likely people who had financial troubles, very, very deep financial troubles, and they had sold themselves into slavery. It was in, for some of them, it was like an indentured servitude. Or they may have been children of slaves, or they may have been children who had been abandoned and left to die as infants, left to die by parents. And that was a regular practice in Roman times. And in Roman times, if you were a slave, you had a clear path to save up your pay and to buy your freedom. And that happened. And so translators, when they come to do loss here, some translators tend to translate the word as bond servants because it reflects the, the kind of slaves that were hearing these letters. So that's the first thing. Secondly, second piece of background information, the Bible, 
both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Bible forbids the practice of stealing people, kidnapping people, and selling them into slavery. Jacob, take Jacob, patriarch of Israel, taken, sold into slavery. He says, you meant that for evil. He says it was evil. The man stealing, the man selling into slavery was evil. And so you, you not only have his statement, you have the civil law of Israel, which stated, Exodus 21, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. It was a capital offense. The New Testament also forbids stealing and selling people. For instance, 1 Timothy 1.10 lists a variety of sins for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, having said that, given that background, we have to face a terrible truth. Though the Bible forbids it, though the Bible forbids it, American Christianity, including Southern Reformed Presbyterian theology, churches, they practiced and they defended slavery. They did. And Christians even misused passages like today's passage to keep black women and black children and black men in slavery. And today we are still suffering from what was done hundreds of years ago. But if you can stick with me through today's teaching, you'll see that the text actually sets up not the support of slavery, but actually sets up the elimination of slavery, even, even this debt slavery that was practiced in the Roman times. So that's the second piece. Third piece of background information. In Roman times, the slaves were treated as property. How did, how did masters treat slaves in Roman times? Well, some masters were kind, but some masters were cruel. They would beat slaves. They might sexually abuse slaves. Masters clearly held the power. And so that's the third piece of background information. Now, with all of that, let's look at the text. We see three things here. First of all, we see how servants should obey masters. How servants should obey masters. And then secondly, we see how masters should become servants. How masters should become servants. And then thirdly, the master who became a slave. So how, ma- how servants should obey masters, how masters should become servants, and the master who became a slave. We'll start with how servants should obey masters. Verse 5, bond servants or slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Now at this point, the Bible does something radical, and it's similar to what we saw last week with, with children. Paul directly addresses slaves here. That's radical. It's even it's subversive for that culture and that context. In a time when slaves were viewed as property, Christianity insists that slaves are not property, but they're people. It's, it's the reformed doctrine of man. We all, all humans bear the image of God, no matter what your place is in society, no matter what your position, no matter your income, no matter the neighborhood that you live in. People are equals before God. Now, you see that in the earlier chapters of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 19, He says about the Christian community, composed of all kinds of people with all kinds of background, of all stations, those who believe and participated in the Christian community, they are one in Christ. 
He says in Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so Galatians 3.28, Paul says it even more directly. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so it's radical. Christianity brought together in one room, into one community, into one body. Christianity brought together groups that would normally, they would be kept apart, they would keep themselves apart, and whether they were high or low, whether they were rich or poor, Outside of Christianity, they would not have mingled together. And if they happened to be proximate together, the differences would have been established and it would have divided the people. But in Christianity, you are a human. And if you've believed on Christ, you're a peer. You're a peer with everyone else in the community. And you're an equal. That means if you're a man, you are a brother to the women. In the church. And if, if you're a woman, it means you are a sister to the men in the church. And if you're poor, and even if you're a slave, it means that you are a wealthy fellow heir with the rich man sitting next to you in church. You will receive and have an equal share and place in the kingdom of Christ. So Christianity threads this this needle very artfully. Christianity recognized the economic and the societal differences. They're there. We hear wives and husbands addressed. We hear children and parents addressed. And here we're hearing slaves and masters addressed. Christianity recognized that there were real economic and societal differences, but it makes them into temporary, passing things. They're like, they're like differences in, in genre. Some of you for whatever your station in life. Some of you are living in a musical. Others are living in a comedy. Others are living in a documentary. Or maybe your life is a thriller. But all of us are actors with different sets and different roles and different experiences and different comforts or challenges. At the end of the day, though, before God, we are all his children. And so you've got slaves here, and they're being addressed, and they're being addressed as full members alongside masters maybe in the same congregation that was radical, that was countercultural, that had to be challenging. Now, how about us? How about us? Some of, you live in a, some of you live in a nice house. Others are just barely making enough to rent a room. Some of you drive great cars. Others don't even have a car. You walk everywhere. You have to take public transportation or get a ride. In the kingdom of God, none of those things define you. None of those things give you worth or value and none of those things makes you worthy of more or less honor or respect in the kingdom in Christ in Christ that other person who is so different from you is your long lost brother is your long lost sister another fellow wanderer who is found by Christ as you were and retrieved by Christ into the flock of of his sheep now, what does, what does Paul say to, to bond servants? What does Paul say to slaves? Verse 5, he says, <clears throat> he says, be obedient to your human masters. He tells bond servants to obey, to, to follow the, the directions and the commands given by the master. 
Now, that's not what we want to hear. That's not what we want to hear. We don't want slavery. And maybe you are in, you're stuck with some kind of position where you've got a terrible supervisor. You've even got an, an abusive supervisor. Or you're stuck in a situation that's like slavery. You're, you're grinding it out at work, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, grinding out to just to work off a debt or the demands of some relationship you're in. It feels like prison. It feels like you're in this relationship and it feels like they, the other person, is taking everything from you as a person. One commentator points out that the closest parallel that maybe that we have to, to bond servants today is military service. When you sign up for the military, they own you. And, and, and they own you and they, the, the effects on your family they own your family, and higher-ranking people tell you what you must do, where you must go, and in the military, your master gives you orders, and you have to obey the orders. And, and your family will, will endure whatever consequence happens because of those orders. But, but Paul tells you how you can thrive, how you can thrive as a bondservant. And in verses 5 through 8, he tells four different ways of how to do that, how to obey a master. So five, five through eight, verse five, he tells you the attitude with which you must obey. Secondly, verse six, he tells you the depth of your obedience. Thirdly, verse seven, he tells you the enthusiasm of your obedience. And then verse, uh, fourthly, verse eight, he tells you the hope for obedience. But note this, with all of this, and, and we'll go through them, note this, first of all, first of all, you have got to replace your boss. You have got to get rid of your boss and see that you have a replacement boss. What do I mean? For each one of those, Paul removes the human master and replaces the human master with a heavenly master. Look at how he does that for all four of these aspects. Verse 5, he says, Obey with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. As to Christ, as if Christ, not a man, not a woman, was your master. And then he does it again. Same with verse 6. He says, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, as if you're slaves of Christ. Then also verse 7, he says, obey with goodwill as to the Lord. In verse 8, same thing. He says, obey, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. So you see how he removes the human Superior, the human supervisor from the picture, and he inserts Christ. So if you find yourself under someone who is cruel, someone who's overly demanding, and you're in, you're in some kind of intolerable situation, so long as God has you there, if you are a believer, Christ is your real master. And somehow, as hard as your situation is, as much as your situation feels like you're in a slavery it's Christ, not a mere person who is your Lord. So are your, are, your, are your parents hard? Is your professor hard? Is your spouse more like a boss for you? And is your boss more like a dictator for you? If you are a Christian, Paul tells you to alter your perspective. You've got to change your perspective. You direct report to Christ, the Lord. He is your true head. And if you can make that perspective change, and if you can keep that perspective change, you can flourish. You can flourish even in a position that feels like slavery. Well, what does that look like? First of all, 
let's look at the attitude. The attitude when, when Christ is your Lord and Master. Verse 5, bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. And so maybe in your, your position, in your situation, the supervisor gives you a task. You get tasked with fixing some problem. And so you obey, you take up the assignment, and you do it with the highest respect for your supervisor. You do it with fear and trembling, it says. That, that's an expression of, of lowliness. It's an expression of weakness. It says, I'm the lower person in this power equation. I'm the lesser person. And Paul adopted this himself when he went to the churches, as he served in the churches. Uh, look at how he made himself a slave to his congregation. 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you with weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That's his position. That's his attitude when he is in his place of service. And, and you do it, he says in verse 5, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. As to Christ. So that means whatever your assignment is, whatever has been given to you to do, and your, 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 your service, your work, maybe they ask you to draft the budget. It's this tedious thing that's filled with all these details, and it's really just grunge work. You will draft the budget as if Jesus Christ asked you to draft the budget, or you've been tasked with stacking up all the inventory and putting it on the shelves or taking it off the shelves and putting it on some other shelves. You will stack the inventory on the shelves as if Jesus Christ had asked you to stack the inventory. You put your heart into it. You will do your work well. You'll do it without grumbling. You'll do it without resentment. Now, is that hard? It is hard. But is it hard to do it for him? That's different, isn't it? That's the attitude of, of obedience. Now, secondly, look at the depth of obedience that's called for. This is in verse six. He says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants or slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And so that means when it talks about eye service, doing it with eye service not to please men, that means you obey when people are watching you on the job, but you also obey when people aren't watching. When the assignment will be checked, you do it, but even when you know that this assignment probably is not going to be checked, you also do it well. You do it when the, the computers and the camera are tracking and you also do it when the computers and the camera aren't tracking. You do it well. And that will add depth to your work. That will add excellence to your service. When you're asked to clean something up, to clean up a mess, either clean up the kitchen or clean up the database, you truly make things clean, not, not just superficially, but at the level that's being requested. You, you do your task as if you were a slave, not to the U.S. Navy, but as if you were a slave to Christ. And wouldn't you want to be faithful to Jesus, both in lesser things as well as in greater things? Christ himself said, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is, he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And so you children, when, when mom or dad ask you to work, to do something, do you do do you do your work the same when dad leaves? Do you do your work diligently 
when mom doesn't see you. And for you, you older people, when you work, when you're at your studies, do you labor faithfully when eyes are off of you? Do you labor as if Christ himself is watching you? So now thirdly, let's look at the enthusiasm of the obedience, the, enthousi- the enthusiasm of the obedience. Verse seven, he says, obey with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. He says, not unto people. You're obeying orders, but not unto a man, not unto a woman over you, because the reality is sometimes they don't deserve it. Sometimes the person over you provokes you. Sometimes the person over you is rude. That's just the, that's the flat out truth. The person over you is rude and, and they're ungrateful. And you will never get proper recognition for what you do for that boss. And frankly, some of them shouldn't be in the position of authority over you. But still, you grind it out. You get no gratitude. You get no acknowledgement for all your effort. But here he's saying, still do it with a good will. Do it with cheer. Do it with positivity. Your heart is in it, not because you like your master, but because you love your Lord who is Christ. And if you're able to do that, if God gives you the grace to do that and to stay in that, your work, your life will show a difference to the rest of the team. When everyone else on the the team is simmering with resentment about the supervisor, but you're you're this strange egg who, who isn't spiked with bitterness. You're able to do the work without grudging sourness. Instead, you've got this gladness, and they see that. Why? Why? How? How? It's because you work for Christ. You work for Christ, not for a man, not for a woman. And, and there, there used to be this bumper sticker, I, I, don't know, I think it was in the 70s or 80s, this bumper sticker that said, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. That's the reality for you if you're a believer. That's who your boss is. We've looked at the attitude in obedience. We've looked at the depth of the obedience, we looked at the enthusiasm while obeying. Fourthly, look at the hope in obedience. Look at the hope here. Verse eight, obey, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Now, this is big, and, and if you can understand this, and if, if you can keep it in your, your thinking, it can transform so many of the frustrations and so many of the disappointments that we face. When, when you're, when you're, your impossible supervisor gives you work that seems pointless. It seems like it's just busy work. When you understand this, the pointless work isn't pointless anymore because you, believer, you will receive the same from the Lord. Your pointless assignment isn't pointless when you do it unto the Lord. When you do good work, when you're faithful in your work, the hope is that everything in the end. Everything's going to be weighed and tested and approved by God the judge. And this means when you do work that nobody sees, whether it's the the extra time that you put in to perform due diligence, whether it's the honesty that you you go the extra mile to express, the honesty that you exercise to ensure legal compliance and just moral compliance, when no one sees it, God sees it. And he will recognize it in the end. And that also means the work that you do that gets scrapped, the work that you do that disappears, that gets 
thrown away, whether it's proposal, a proposal that you're drafting up for work, and then it just gets, it doesn't get used. There's a different contract that comes in, and all those weeks that you put in, it's just shelved, and it will never be looked at again. Or, or the groundwork that you do for a project, and the project's canceled. All those weeks, all that effort, it seems wasted. Maybe at, like at a lower level, it's your, your car, the repairs you make to your car, only to have it wrecked a week later. Or the marriage or the ministry that dissolves even though you poured everything into it. The relationship that costs you so much. All of that counts to God. That's what this is saying here. It doesn't matter how small your role was. It doesn't matter how significant your role was. You will receive from the Lord, he says, whether slave or free. No one is too low to be excused from this. No one's too high to avoid his scrutiny or his reward. And to the God who judges both the menial and the momentous things matter. Both of them, all of them. Your work and the attitude with which you worked, all of that matters to God. For 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, all of this speaks of, of how, how we should obey those over us. Even, even when we're on the weak side of the power curve. Now let's talk about how masters should become servants. Verse nine, and there's just one verse here to masters. And you masters do the same things to them. Do the same things to the slaves. Douloi, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We noted at the beginning that Paul made a radical move. He, he views slaves as people, not property. He elevates the human dignity of the lowest and the weakest people in that society. Here, Paul does something else that's radical. Paul subverts the culture's values even further, he says, you, you masters, you people who have the power, you people who have slaves, he says, do the same things to them. What's he saying? He's saying, you masters, you become slaves to your slaves. It's, it's revolutionary. Nobody, nobody was saying anything like this when Paul wrote this. Now think about that. What would happen? What would happen to the tone of every power relationship if the person on top became weak to those who were below? What would happen to the tone of every work relationship if the department head became servant to the staff? If the master became slaves to his slaves? Well, for one thing, it would have ended American slavery in one week. If slave owners had said and done to black slaves, if, if slave owners had said, I have become a Christian, I am a Christian, and though I am your master in this country, in the kingdom, I will now become your slave. American slavery would have disappeared. They would have, they would have furnished the emancipated slaves with what they needed to rebuild, to refit, to re-enter the country, or to return to their country. 
Paul says something else that's very countercultural to his hearers. He says, you masters, he says, you masters, give up threatening. Give up threatening. He's saying, don't do violence to your slaves. That was countercultural. He's saying, don't even threaten beatings for disobedience. He's saying, give up threats, making threats, threatening your slaves. And the, the masters who are hearing that, anyone in the culture hearing that would say, but, but that won't work. That will end the entire power structure. Because in Paul's time, in Paul's time, masters commonly beat disobedient slaves. Masters enforced obedience by violence, by the threat of violence. But Paul says, no violence, not even the threat of violence. He tells the Ephesian masters, he says, leave off threatening. Why? Why? He says, because your master, you Ephesian masters, your own master also is in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. He's saying, no beatings, not even threatening beatings to those who are under you. Why? Because God is the master of all, and you too are a bondservant. And so you treat your bondservants as I, the Lord, have treated you. And so what that's saying is, fathers, not only are you fathers, you're also sons. And it's saying managers, business owners, not only are you in authority, you are also under authority, God's authority. He sees and he will render according to your works. And so the call is, no matter where you fall in the power hierarchy, the call is to become a slave to those who are below you, to, to go below those under you, whether it's at home, whether it's at church, whether it's at work. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? It, it, it would have caused everything then in Roman times to just fall apart. That, that wouldn't work, they would say. How do you do that? How do you be in power? How do you be in power over people but work for their good instead of pressuring and threatening them to work for you? How do you do that? And, and when you're at the bottom of the power equation, of the relationship, how do, you, how do you transcend that and live as if you're actually a free woman, as if you're really a free man, bound only to Christ? How do you do that? You have to see the master who became a slave. You have to see Jesus Christ in the gospel. Jesus in the gospel is the master and the Lord of heaven who became a household slave to his own people. John 13, after that, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then Jesus came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? to wash the feet of his people, Jesus, their master, he was becoming a slave to his own disciples. Only the low household slave washed the feet of guests. And and that act, that was symbolic of the entire arc of Jesus' life. Jesus shedding the robes and the trappings of exaltation. Jesus removing his, his garments. It's the incarnation. It's the divine son clothing himself in lowly flesh. Philippians 2, Christ Jesus was equal with God. He was a master, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a doulos, a slave, a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And so John continues, 
So when Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, Jesus said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and master, Lord, Kurios. You call me master, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your master, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant, a slave, doulos, is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Jesus is saying, do you know what I have done to you? I have become your slave. I have washed you. I've made you washed. I've made you clean. And so in the gospel, Jesus was always obedient. He was never disobedient. Jesus was the obedient slave, and yet he was beaten like a disobedient slave in our place. So that you would not be beaten, he was beaten. Jesus became a slave so that you could be set free. So in the gospel, you... If you have believed on him, you are set free from slavery to sin, slavery to the punishment that you deserve. Jesus' obedience is yours. Your disobedience became his. And that enables you to become his. He purchased you at a price. He paid your debt. He purchased you out of your your debt slavery. And he purchased your freedom, not with money, but with blood. And so believers become bondservants not to mere men, not to mere women, but bondservants to Christ because you can say, he bought me. And that purchase didn't make you mere slaves. It elevated you. It elevated you not just to become people, but to become sons and daughters. Galatians 4, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, There are all kinds of complications to loving your slave. If you're a master and you've got a slave, there are all kinds of complications for how do you do that? How would you love a slave? But your own son, your own daughter, he's compelled to love his child. It's not complicated. And that's what God in Christ has done for you, if you believe. When the gift of the gospel starts to dawn on you, you can rise above every slavery that you deal with because it's going to finally end, and God's going to judge all flesh. But even now, you're not slaves. You're sons and daughters of glorious royalty. And that can help you endure and wait. That can help you work for freedom. But you're not having to set your heart on earthly freedom, of having to have earthly deliverance. You can thrive, you can find welfare, whether you're slave or whether you're free. It's complex, it's nuanced, but it sounds a very clear note of freedom, even when outwardly you're living behind bars. 1 Corinthians 7, 20. Let each one, speaking to believers, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So this, this, this moves you to, to be able to live as free wherever you are. And it also can move you. It should move you to, to work for the freedom of others, for the freedom of other people. Both spiritual freedom as you spread the gospel of Christ and earthly freedom as you work for justice and freedom for the earthly captives. And as you who are masters, any of you who are masters, as you become slave to your slaves, just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come again to the the clear statement from your word that we have been bought with a price. And we we have the evidence of your love for us. And so we pray, Lord, as those who are living with a certain destiny and a present freedom, we pray that you would enable us to to live outside, to live above and beyond all of the different things that temporarily, for now, we're having to live under and through and with. And we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to sense that we are free in Christ and that we are gladly bound to him. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.